Wallace. We're very, very grateful that you've joined us. We are in the middle of a study of 1 Peter, and we've come to some specific verses uh, directed to wives. So I want to do two programming notes before we look at the text. Number one, if you look at the bulletin online, I've, uh, Chris has put in there a little a link by the sermon to a handout I've put together called Marriage Checkup Questions from the Humility Toolbox. So if you're married, I would encourage you to click on this, check this out, print it off, and here are some things you can, a uh, little diagnostic device to look at the health of your marriage relationship. This is just an additional reading. Uh, comes with a cure for insomnia, right? There you go. So there's that. Secondly, some of you are wondering, oh, he's going to preach to wives. This doesn't apply to me. You're never going to be married. You're young. Whatever. You don't think this applies to you. You're wrong. <laughs> As I've thought about this text in my own life this week, the jewels of wisdom, the principles that Peter lays out, the genius of how relationships work, yes, the text is focused on wives and husbands, nonetheless, there is so much here for any person to glean, whether or not you're married or ever intend to be married, or you are a male and not a woman. So I think if you listen, you'll see there are wonderful takeaways for an earnest, earnest truth seeker who cares about relationships. Those are the two programming notes. Here's our text. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your ordain, ordain, or adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Let me pray. Lord, take your word Use it for our good, our growth, our hope, your glory in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter has walked us into holy ground. When we are looking at marital relationships, this is a place virtually everyone begins with high expectations, enormous joy and happiness, 
And far too often, marriages devolve into places of unbearable pain. I know many of you women are in pain in your marriage. And if it was only one of you, that would be too many. And there's a sense in which this is exactly what Peter acknowledges. The potential for joy, intimacy, purpose in marriage is enormous, and so is the potential for unbelievable heartache and suffering. Be aware that the two rails that Peter rides us on into this text go back into chapter 2, verse 13, where Peter tells all Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Marriage is an institution. And so he's going to import the idea of being subject to authority into the marriage relationship. The other rail is suffering unjustly as a Christian. So bringing these two together, Peter has something to say to wives. This week, six verses, one verse next week to husbands. That is supposed to give them grace and help and strength in a potentially challenging marriage. This is true by the fact of the word... He uses the word likewise in verse 1. Likewise. See, he's pulling in from chapter 2. Suffering unjustly as a Christian and submitting for the Lord's sake to every institution. Peter is saying there are graces available to you in Christ that enable you to endure. What are those graces? Those graces are, number one, wordless winsomeness, inner beauty, and fearless hope. We want to look at those three things. Notice from verse 1, though, that Peter anticipates, he's really writing to all marriages, and then he anticipates a special category of marriage, so that even if your husband is disobedient to the word, that probably means one of two things. It means you are married to a man who claims Christian faith but isn't living obediently to it. He says he's a Christian, but he's really his own Lord. He's self-directed, not God-directed. A man who's not obeying the things he's taken vows to obey. Or it means someone who is not a Christian, disobedient to the word, someone who's not a Christian. You can see that this, this would happen in Peter's context. The gospel goes to a pagan culture, a woman who's married is converted. I mean, it seems like women have more acute spiritual sensitivities than men on the whole. They tend to be less proud on the whole. Pride is what keeps us often from submitting to Christ. And so a woman is converted to Jesus. Her husband is not. And this is a difficult, suffering marriage situation. She finds herself in, an, in, in, very, in a very different orbit than her husband. Her orbit is worshiping God, loving Jesus, serving the Lord. His orbit is sitting on the couch wondering who's going to win the Super Bowl. 
And this is painful. This is suffering. And what Peter tells you is going to run counter to your deepest instincts. We tend in suffering situations to resort to self-management, self-medication, self-reliance, and self-effort. And Peter says, I've got something better than that for you. Here are the three realities. Number one, wordless winsomeness. So Peter is saying, ask yourself, what is your default mode? In a chafing, this applies to all of us, not just wise. What is your default mode when you're chafing in disappointment in an intimate relationship? What's your default mode? Anger? I'm going to get you back. Self-pity? Withdrawal? Passive-aggressive? Do you know what your default mode is? You need to know that about yourself. Peter is acknowledging that instinctively you're going to want to rely on your words. Man, words are easy to use. I mean, they're just right here. All you need to do is open your mouth. You're going to, be, you're going to want to talk your way through, plead, correct, preach, persuade, show him where he's wrong, tell him what you need, nag. You're going to try to use Verbal persuasion, and Peter says that he, they may be one without a word. Sounds like going fishing without bait. And that doesn't mean you never talk. What's the mark of a healthy relationship? Communication. Show me a healthy marriage, a vital marriage, a couple very much striving together, working together in love. I'll show you a couple that communicates. They talk. They bear burdens. They share. There's intimacy, verbal, oneness. So even in a difficult situation, you need to speak up if he's going to drive off the road. <laughs> you need to speak up if he's going to buy a television and you can't afford it. You need to speak up if you need to talk about parenting strategies. You need to speak up if you're missing each other. But in the sphere of winning your husband to a godly perspective, that's what's in view here. He may be one without a word, winning him to a biblical perspective, winning him to seeing things God's way, Peter says don't rely on words, particularly if he's in rebellion against God. You want to win him to God's point of view. Paul uses the same language in 1 Corinthians 9.19. He says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Win them to the Lord. Win them to God's perspective. They, they might be saved. So your goal is not to prove that you're right. Not to prove that you're lovable or lovely. Not to prove that you were worth marrying. You'd be, you'd be far worth off without a wonderful wife like me. That's not the point. Was that funny? Okay. People think that way. Men think that way. Boy, is my wife lucky to be married to me. Who's thought that? Too embarrassing. You don't have to raise your hand. Thanks, brother. I won't name him. I have one honest parishioner in the back. <laughs> your, main, your main instrument of influence, beloved, is not cogent arguments, potent persuasion. It's your behavior. It's your behavior. And look, we, that's Sanctified common sense, isn't it? You say you love me, show me. Not just by hot air, 
by your action. And the key word for Peter is the word in verse 1, be subject to. I know. Red flags, ding, ding, ding. Jamie alluded to the difficulty of this passage already for us. Be subject to, this is a dirty word in our culture. It conjures up all sorts of uh, ideas of being a doormat, abusive, a male chauvinist pig. Too bad. Because you can't function in a culture without being subject to things. You want an education? You have to be subject to the university or the school's rules for getting that education. You want to go into business? You have to willingly be subject to the state's regulations for business. You want to drive safely on the roads? You and everybody else need to be subject to what makes driving safely. You want to be healed? You subject yourself to the doctor's plan. In principle, we really have no problem with being subject to something. So why is it so repulsive? Does it make you feel less equal? That's not God's idea. We're all created in his image, equal in dignity, beauty, glory. Submission simply refers to, the word literally means to put in order under. And it reveals that in God's universe, there's order everywhere. The Bible tells us the, the creation is subject to God. Jesus was subject to his parents. Jesus is subject to his father. Christians are subject to Jesus. Church members subject to their elders. Children are subject to their parents. Citizens subject to the state. And yes, wives subject to their husbands. God has ordained an economy of functioning that makes the relationship work. Paul alludes to this in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So subjection is a willing deferral to his leadership, his authority given him by God in the way you submit to other authorities in your life, only this is a better one. Again, this is an application of chapter 2, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. In the, in the institution of marriage, God has ordained that someone ultimately is in control. Every organization has someone ultimately with tie-breaking authority, as it were. And again, it doesn't mean you don't talk about things. In a healthy relationship, people have a decision to make. They communicate, they talk, they look at pros, they look at cons, and they, come, they become on one mind. But a wife's submission is a joyful giving herself over to God's design that there is someone like Jesus is my head, Jesus is head of the church, there's someone who is head of the relationship. She seeks to honor the office. Paul said it in Ephesians 5.22, wives, be subject to your own husbands. This doesn't call every woman to be subject in every situation to all men, not at all. Your own husband, as to the Lord. As to the Lord. So submission is an attitude, it's a demeanor, it's a heart that says, Lord, I belong to you, I'm subject to you, take and use all of me to bring blessing in this relationship. May the way I live, may the way I respond, may I, the way I give input, honor my husband as the head of this relationship. I want my womanhood to nourish his manhood. Even if he doesn't belong to Christ, and this is a difficult marriage situation, now, Jamie prayed this, and I'm going to underscore it. 
you are not called women to be subject to sexual abuse, physical abuse, or verbal abuse. If you suspect that is happening in your marriage, seek professional help immediately. Seek help immediately. This in no way justifies the abuse of women, wives, by their husbands. Here's the point. God has designed that what breaks his stony heart is not what your husband hears, but what? What he sees. God has vested no power in nagging, but all power in your behavior. And the two words that describe that, that will melt his heart as a rule, are in verse 2, respectful and pure conduct. In other words, you want to create a situation, if your spouse is an unbeliever, you want to create a situation where the unbelieving spouse, the one disobedient to the Lord, says, I may not agree with your theology or believe in your God, but I have no dispute with the difference your beliefs make in the way you live. The way you live is an irrefutable apologetic for what you say you believe. The word pure means clean, morally upright. Your motives are irreproachable. He can't smell that you're manipulating him for your own ends. Respectful alludes to your posture, to his authority as the head of the relationship, as well as your fear of the Lord. Let me just put a capstone on this point by referring to a couple of Proverbs. Imagine that, shocking. Mike had some Proverbs to put into his sermon. This is good for all of us in the way we think about the way we use our words. Proverbs 16, 24, pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, healing to the bones. So are my words creating a sweetness and an appetite in the person that I'm speaking with for more of them? Give me more of those words. Proverbs 15, 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, a harsh word stirs up anger. 21, 23, he who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from trouble. Oftentimes because it's what we say that gets us in trouble. 25, 11, like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Think before you speak. And then 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Stop and think, men and women, are my words thrashing? Are they cutting? Are they destroying? Are they healing? I thought I'd share an example of this from some of my pleasure reading. I'm, I'm reading a book now I keep actually coming back to uh, by a, a wonderful Presbyterian theologian named Archibald Alexander. He taught 40 years at Princeton Seminary. He had his roots in Virginia, so he can't be all bad. Anyway, um, in the back is this, this a rich, wonderful book. In the back of it, he has a, a letter to a bereaved widow, and he has a letter to a bereaved widower. So he's writing to a man who lost his wife. And I actually discovered this providentially this week in my own pleasure reading. So just want to read what Archibald Alexander, ever the pastor and a top-rated theologian, says to a bereaved widower, a man who lost his wife. He says this, She was indeed like a guardian angel who was ever present to aid you. And although she was careful, 
never to leave her own proper sphere to obtrude her opinion in matters of which she was no competent judge. Yet in innumerable cases, when your spirit was too much excited or even exasperated by the rude collisions with the world, she has gently and almost imperceptibly kept you back from rash expressions and precipitous acts to which your disposition is, in such circumstances, somewhat inclined. Even when she did not speak a word, the example of her meekness and gentleness has been the means of restraining you or recalling you to a sense of your Christian duty. Sir, you are so far better off because of the wordless beauty of your spouse, keeping you in check. Isn't that great? That's just... That's just beautiful. Let's move on to the second grace. First, winsome wordlessness. Secondly, inner beauty. Verse 3. Don't let your adorning be external. The braiding of the hair, putting on of gold jewelry, clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. What's he getting at with the idea of adorn? It's the thing you think makes you attractive. Every one of us, male and female, adorn ourselves in some way. There's something we think makes us attractive. How much we know, how charming we are, how pleasant we are to be around, how successful we are, how we dress, whatever. We all adorn ourselves with something. And Peter's acknowledging that there is a temptation for women to to make the thing that makes them most attractive to their husbands external. Clothes, jewelry, shapeliness. And he directs it away from that to the inner person of the heart, the heart, the seat of your allegiances, the wellspring of true beauty, where you are most sincere. And you hear echoes of this from Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10. Paul writes, likewise also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. How do you want to dress up to make yourself beautiful before your husband? Good works. Hey, he's not saying sex appeal is bad. He's not saying you shouldn't take good care of yourself. If you think sex appeal is bad, you haven't read the Song of Solomon or Proverbs 5. There's a place for that. God has not ordained that's the thing to break a rebellious, stony heart. I mean, think about when you're checking out at the grocery store and you see the tabloids and all the shapely, beautiful people in Hollywood, they're splitting up. It's not because they're not sexy and beautiful. Because they can't get along. They can't get along. We hear in this 1 Samuel 16, 6, man looks at the outward, God looks at the heart. That heart, Peter says, is imperishable. All those other things perish, not this kind of heart. It's authentic. It doesn't fade away. It can't melt. And it's not dependent on things you buy. (laughs) And how does Paul depict this heart so it's real clear to you? With two words. Gentle and quiet. Gentle is not a distinctly feminine word in the Bible. It's used of Jesus. 
It's a fruit of the spirit that every one of us should be bearing in our lives. It means you're not pushy, you're not self-assertive, you're not insisting on your rights. You have such, in, 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 in the Greek, it actually had something to do with it with, with, that was extremely powerful but under control. As a woman, you have such confidence because you know who you are, to whom you belong, and who's in control, that you don't need to be brash. I would say it's twin sister's humility. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And we saw Jesus adorn that glory as we closed uh, chapter 2. The other word is quiet. It means you're not a rambunctious spirit. You've got nothing to prove. You don't have to be shout to be heard. Your behavior commands hearing. You can be quiet because you're so secure in Jesus' love for you. Christian woman, where did you spend time this morning? At the foot of the cross, I trust. And at the foot of the cross, you have received the ultimate criticism. You've received the ultimate harshness. Jesus says, your sins put me here. You crucified me. And yet I love you. You are precious to me. You are beautiful to me. And with that sense of love and confidence, oh, you can endure. You can endure. You can suffer. The worst you deserve is over. Jesus took it. And you can say to Jesus, Jesus, you know I'm far worse than my husband knows. Yet I'm far more loved than I ever dreamt possible. Jesus, you've crowned me with beauty. If my husband only saw me for the beauty that I will be in your presence one day, he would be tempted to fall down and worship me. That's gentleness and quietness. It's resting in who you are in Jesus. And Peter says this is precious in the sight of God. That word was actually used in ancient Greek culture to describe something that was negatively extravagant, opulent. Peter's saying when God looks at that heart, he finds it absolutely precious because it's a heart that trusts him. And this is a heart that reveals back to him the glory of his son. Precious. Someone once said, a pretty face can capture a man's attention, but it is a beautiful spirit that will hold it. Last point. Here's the three graces that help us in any relationships, particularly wives, struggling marriages, fearless hope. So what does Peter do? He's, interestingly, he's writing mostly to Gentiles. What is their exposure to the word of God at this point in redemptive history? Just the Old Testament and, and the letters that they're receiving uh, and that are being circulated in the, in the early church. So what does Peter do? He says, I need to illustrate this. So he reaches back. He reaches way back to the covenant of grace. And every, uh, every Jewish thinking person knew that Abraham is the, is, the, is the father of our faith. Who is the first lady in the covenant of grace? Sarah. So he reaches back. Sarah is emblematic of the godly women in the past who did just what I'm telling you to do. There was a mindset among Jews that the highest honor was to be in that line of women who received the grace and help of Sarah's God. That's why Peter says they hoped in God. They were free to trust their husband's headship, frail and foible as it was. None of these men were perfect. Yet because they hoped in God, they followed his, his, uh, their, his, his leadership. 
And she uses this phrase, just as Sarah called him Lord. It's probably an allusion to Genesis 18, 12. You remember when Sarah and Abraham are told they're going to have a baby, but yet they're well up in years. And in that context, Sarah kind of blurts out, my Lord is old. He refers to Abraham as my Lord. It's just a polite form of speech, meaning sir, mister. Here's the point. Because you know the glory of Sarah's God, you want to keep covenant with this God, doing what is right, having nothing to fear. So let's close by simply asking this question. They hoped in God. What does it mean that you hope in God? We all hope for something. We all have a functional hope. There's something in all of our lives, follower of God or not, there's a functional hope in your life. That's the thing where you say, I trust this to give my life stability. I trust this to give my life security. I trust this to give my life significance. That is your functional hope. It's your ultimate reliance. It might be your spouse. It might be a great marriage. It might be your personality, wealth, performance. What do we know about the holy women of old and their hope? We know this. They didn't see our hope as clearly as we do. His name is Jesus. Our hope is a person. It's Jesus. We trust a person. We rely on a person. We look to a person. We have faith in a person. Our functional hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the more we're looking at the source of our hope, Jesus, the stronger our hope becomes. I don't know how any of us do it in suffering situations where it's, it grates upon us to submit to someone that we find unlikable without a very big Jesus. So let me remind you of the Jesus Paul showed us, excuse me, Peter showed us at the end of chapter 2. This Jesus bore unjust suffering without a word. This Jesus adorned gentleness and quietness in his heart. This Jesus trusted his father. This Jesus sacrificed himself with unspeakable torments for his enemies. And that means, beloved, there is superabounding grace, power in Jesus for you to endure these difficult situations. Run to this Jesus who understands. Run to this Jesus who is a refuge. Run to this Jesus who will pour out everything you need in superabundance to endure these stressful, painful relationships. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, suffering unjustly without reviling, trusting your Father, adorning your heart with gentleness and quietness, all for our salvation's sake, all to be the one who has more grace, more power, more mercy than we need in these challenging situations. Have mercy on suffering women. 
Convert their husbands where they're disobedient to the word. Bring their husbands who name the name of Christ who are disobedient back to the word. Make them astonishingly beautiful as followers of Jesus. Strengthen our dear wives who are hurting. Let our children see examples of women who hoped in God as did Abraham, as did Sarah. May our children see examples of men who also trusted godly behavior over words, who themselves were gentle and quiet when necessary. May our children see Jesus as our hope by the way we speak, think, and act, all for his glory and the sake of his church. Amen.